HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is presented by New York Mutual Trading. Welcome to The Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Elaine Chacon-Brown. We'll talk to Elaine about the book on California, Jan Cease Robinson, diversity, and a lot more. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Elaine Chakam Brown is recognized as one of the world's top wine communicators and wine educators. As a writer, Elaine contributes to an impressive list of publications, including the current 8th edition of the World Atlas of Wine, the 4th edition of the Oxford Wine Companion, and the book on California. You also may know Elaine as wine reviewer Hawk Waka Waka. Elaine is a prolific speaker and was recently appointed U.S. Executive Editor of JohnCeaseRobinson.com, bringing expertise on sustainability, diversity and equity, climate action, and social responsibility to the platform. Elaine Chacon brown is Inupiag and Unangan Sugpiag, that is indigenous from what is now known as Alaska. Elaine has been cited as one of the most inspiring people in wine, and much of Elaine's work in writing and wine has shed light on the lack of diversity and inclusion that's long plagued the industry. Elaine, welcome to the Grape Nation. Sam, thank you so much. Did I get the Inupiag pronunciations right? No, but I will (laughs) say them again for you. you. And Go I will, ahead. I will also point out it is um, they are all from a language rarely spoken and rarely heard. So it would be shocking if you <laughs> said it was, them right. correctly. Right. But yeah, first so, time out. Yeah, Go so ahead. my family. I am indigenous to Alaska, and my father's side is Inupiaq, okay, which is from northern coastal Alaska, and my mother's side is Unangan. Which is kind of western coast, southwestern coast 
Alaska. So both coastal peoples, broadly speaking, both Inuit, um, but just different tribal groups within that. All right, I want to talk to you about that in a minute. But we are talking to Elaine remotely on our platform, Zencaster. Elaine, where are you right now? So I'm at my home in Sonoma, in California. Okay. All right. So let's get started. Um, as I mentioned to you offline, I think where you came from really shaped, you know, who you are. And I want you to give us a brief background on your journey in life and wine um, that got you to the present, which is, you know, what you're doing, which I described in the intro, um, and living in Sonoma. Um, so you could start wherever you want. I mean, I know you salmon fished as a little kid, so, you know, take me from wherever to the current. Um, and, you know, we'll use that as the setup. Okay, cool. So I was born and raised in Alaska in a multi-generational indigenous family. I was lucky enough to grow up with both grandparents and great-grandparents, but also very much in a culture that really centers our elders. And I think that is important to mention because it really informs how I continue to move through the world and what you know it guides my values. And it really guided how I came into wine as well. Because um, the, the view that I was raised with is that our elders are not simply older. They actually have a wealth of life experience. That means they have insights we simply haven't gained yet. You know, we don't have the amount of time, the patience that comes with time and the, the experience that comes with time that someone who is an elder simply has. And in my culture, being an elder, again, is not just about age. It also comes from demonstrating leadership and um, also demonstrating you know, ex expertise that comes from experience. So there's kind of three ways of being an elder. Um, the most respected would be someone that kind of encapsulates all three. But then coming into wine much, much later, obviously, that really guided what I assumed it would take for me to learn what wine's about, you know. So a lot of my work has been about trying to actually go and and sit with the elders of the wine industry and really actually simply listen to them and really try to respectfully absorb their perspective, the history that comes from um, their experience and learning from that and um, trying to understand, you know, what would cause them to have the views they do about wine and how to grow it, what's how it's best to make it. And in gathering those perspectives, then see, okay, we need to honor these experiences that they've had and which of those still make sense today that we can keep learning from today. So my cultural background really informs how I approach wine, I think, in that sense, um, and what so, I think it means to write about it or speak about it too. What's interesting is that's all out there and people don't, you know, utilize it or respect it to the extent that they should, um, you know, to help formula, formulate. I mean, culturally, that's how you were brought up. Um, just fill in a few blanks for me. You did not, 
And I, I, I want to ask you two things. The first thing I want to ask you is, you know, when, at what point did you recognize, you know, that love of wine and passion for wine where it became a vocation? But fill in some blanks. You know, you were doing some interesting non-wine related things before that. Just yeah, let me I've, hear about some of, some of that. Yeah, I've done a lot of different things. So I, like I said, born and raised in Alaska, um, think you referenced quickly. I was actually born into a commercial fishing family. So yeah. my my on my mom's side, um, my nieces and nephew are now fifth generation commercial fishermen. So we grew up in Bristol Bay. We would migrate back and forth, spend the summers in Bristol Bay on the far western coast of Alaska, commercial fishing, and then go back to Anchorage in the winters in order to ensure we had access to a mainstream school. And so I grew up doing that. I started commercial fishing at the age of nine, gill netting for <laughs> salmon, and then became an owner of my own operation at 13. And, um, you know, it. I spent a third of the year on the far western coast, a really tiny area in terms of population, very, um, very remote. But growing up in Alaska, I'm really grateful I grew up there. I think it was a unique and really important place for me to grow up. But at the same time, I was very aware at the time that news and cultural events all happen somewhere else. You, you know, think? I'd, yeah, I'd be listening <laughs> to, um, you know, to new, you know, we used to all listen to the radio all the time back in the day, right? And so I'd be listening to the radio and there'd be some like fascinating museum opening or there'd be some, you know, major annual event or something. And it was always somewhere else. And as a very little kid, I remember thinking, someday I'm going to go find that place. And that really set me up so that in my 20s, and, you know, in my late teens, once I finished high school, I just, I was just determined to travel. I didn't have, you know, a lot of expendable income when I was that young. And so I, um, you know, I drove all over North America. Um, it wow. ended up meaning I moved around a lot. I just like through my 20s, I moved all over North America as well. And then I, like I said, I didn't have um, a lot of money to just spend on traveling. So I figured out once I was in school, I figured out that I could do things like summer writing programs. I was able to do two weeks in St. Petersburg, Russia, a month in Prague. Um, and, you know, and then and I had, I had no money. So in the midst of that, um, I had to, there was like a 10 day break between when I finished this program in St. Petersburg and when the one in Prague started. And so I had to figure out how to spend that 10 days and be able to afford it. And the only thing I could do, <laughs> this sounds really grand at first, but it turned out the cheapest thing to do was actually to catch a cheap flight from St. Petersburg to Paris. And then I found a dorm style hostel in Montmartre that included breakfast and for 10 days, I could only, I didn't even have money to take the metro. So I lived in this four person room in this hostel. All the other beds changed every day, like who was staying right. with me. Um, in the mornings, I'd get a little piece of cheese and a croissant. Like that was my food for the day because I couldn't afford anything else. And right. then I walked everywhere. And, um, and then I had pre-purchased my very cheap flight from Paris to Prague. And once I got there, um, I had, you know, a two person dorm style room, 
and a month of the writing program. But I also knew that uh, I'd get more food <laughs> in the writing program. <laughs> so I had to tough it out for 10 days in Paris. It, it, now that's like an iconic writer's story, you know? It so, is Paris, yeah. you know, in Prague. Mm-hmm. Um, it sounds kind of primal, though, you know, just existing. Yeah. You, you're one of the few people in Paris other than walking around, which is great, you know, that didn't take advantage of everything else. Um, so you you furthered your studies. Um, but the question I asked you before is when... when Yeah, when did I fall in when love did, with wine? The, yeah. the wine, because, you know, your life... There's a lot of facets to your life, but wine is really, you know, a major one and a continuing thread. So I'm just curious, you know, when did that light up? Yeah, so I didn't grow up with wine. It, You know, again, remember how remote Alaska right. still is, but, but, you know, distribution channels, not just for wine, but even for like produce and meats and all kinds of stuff, they were really much more limited and... So there wasn't a lot of wine going into Alaska. And um, so I didn't, I just wasn't growing up around it. But when I was 19, my dad came home one day. I've told the story a few times, but he came home one day and he's like, okay, I need everyone to sit down. And my dad would would do this every once in a while. He'd have big family announcements and they were very serious, you know? So, so he sat us all down and very seriously, he was like, I have an announcement. And we're like, oh my gosh, you know, like, what is this? And he says, I've discovered Pinot Noir. Specifically Pinot Noir, not not wine? Yeah, no, no, no. I've discovered Pinot Noir (laughs) and I'm going to have- What was it, where and how? He, I have no idea. I don't, I think even today, my parents don't really know enough about wine to worry about all the details. Right, right. Doesn't matter. And my, yeah. like, my mom knows she's like Cabernet. She doesn't really like Pinot. My dad knows he likes Pinot. He doesn't really like Cabernet. That's like, funny. that's as much as they need to know, you know? Okay. And so he says, I've discovered Pinot Noir, and I need you all to know I'm going to have a glass of wine a day from here on out. My doctor says it's good for my heart. And, wow. and I was like, but again, remember, like, my dad, there would be these pivotal moments when he'd have a family announcement. So the idea right. that Pinot Noir is worth a pivotal moment, like, really stuck in my head, you know? <laughs> <That's funny. laughs> and um, so I was, it kind of stayed there as a curiosity, like, boy, wine must be something important. My dad basically just said it is, you know? Right, right. And then... Um, a couple years later, when I turned 21, I, I have always had friends of lots of different ages. I think that goes back to the cultural thing. But I had a friend that was older than me. And when I turned 21, she gave me a really nice bottle of Chianti. Again, I didn't know about wine. So I, I don't, to this day, I don't know, was it Chianti Classico? Like who made Reserva, it? I no whatever, right. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I just know that I was like, oh, this is interesting. And when I opened it, I was shocked by how good it was. Like she got me a really good bottle, you know? And I really? was like, yeah. And I was like, oh my God, this is why people like this stuff, you know? So those are two important incidents yeah. that shaped your love and, you know, movement towards wine. Yeah. But what uh, finally- could have gone either way. I mean, your yeah. dad could have come home and, you know, like, whatever yeah. people perceive as crappy wine and your friend could have bought you a crappy wine. Yeah. So it was good. But it good, was several uh, years. It was several years later. The thing that finally hooked me was 
I had a bottle of wine I I really, really liked. And when I went to learn about it, I realized that I wasn't just learning something about grapes. I was learning the history of these people, how they changed their region and effectively changed their world. The geology of the place turned out to matter. The wine was not that common. That turned out to matter. Like there were all these details that I realized I was learning all through this one glass. So it and, wasn't a beverage. It was yeah. it was everything else, which yeah. is really what it's all about. <laughs> well, and I think right? that's why I bothered to to really invest in learning about wine and now working in it. You know, because yeah. it's always a lot of things. Um, the story with your dad is incredible. <laughs> I mean, we've talked a little about, you know, your family, but it's just a funny thing that, you know, he would call that meeting and it Mm -hmm. would be a specific wine and, you know, the impact it had on you. Um, All right. So does, do you feel that gets us up to the current? Yeah. 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 I mean, there's always more to talk about with me because I've had sort of an odd life. So whatever you want to talk about, I'm fine. So, yeah, and if anything, you know, needs to be uh, worked in, you'll bring it up. Um, What I wanted to first talk to you about is one of the reasons that I came to you, and it's about a book called On California, From Napa to Nebbiolo, Wine Tales from the Golden State. Um, To me, it's really a compendium on California wine written by, you know, the best people in the business and a diverse group. Um, And you were part of the project and the people that brought us together are involved with the project. So I want you to tell me a couple things. This is not just any publisher that put this book out. It's the Academy Duvon. So I want you to tell me a little about that. And tell me, you know, a little about the book, you know, set up the book and then we'll talk about parts of it. Yeah, great. Yeah, so Academy Devon Library out of um, the UK, you know, Stephen Spurrier helped start that. And it the name comes from the shop and school he'd had, you know, decades ago in Paris. And so he, of course, was always, you know, what a remarkable, pivotal person in the world of wine. And his interest always was very much in education and understanding as well. And so it makes sense that you know, eventually he would move from having not just a wine shop and wine school, but a public, you know, help start a publishing um, group as well that, you know, they really release some of the iconic books in wine and they reprint some historical texts too, which of course I really admire and appreciate. But this particular book on California um, was really instigated and led by a brilliant editor, Susan Keevil. I was really feel fortunate to have been able to work with her. She's really um, such a thoughtful and, um, and, you know, careful, thoughtful editor. I, I really admire that. And so she reached out to me um, relatively early in the book process that, you know, she's of course based in the UK. So she had been able to talk to some key people, Stephen, of course, Hugh Johnson, of course, um, and, you know, he contributed several entries to the text as well. And so she, by the, when I spoke with her, she'd compiled this excellent list of mostly UK based writers. And she had some ideas about other topics to be, um, put into the book as well. And I said, oh my gosh, this is so exciting 
but you have there's you can access anyone in the world that knows something about California wine. So how about I write about the things that might be more challenging or kind of less enticing topics for other writers? So let's right. make sure you've got these, you know, these other things covered and I'll take some of the needs, so to speak. But I also um, connected Susan to a couple other people's suggestions for writers. And um, and then initially what I ended up doing was I took the a chapter on writing about Gallo, kind of like how they came to be what they are today. Right. And then also a chapter on fires. And part of my interest there too was, I think there's so many incredible wine writers in the world, but sometimes people's access to the details of a topic just by circumstance end up more limited. And so there's certain topics where we see the enigma as the focus. And whenever I see that, I'm like, okay, but what's what's inside that? How much could we push into to learn? And I felt like Gallo and Fires even are both topics like that, where we often get the like enigma of them. And I want to know what can we actually substantially understand? So that was my motivation for taking those two chapters. But and then, um, well, let's let's talk about that for a second. Because yeah. on the Gallo one, I think when I looked at the chapter, I said, "Oh, okay, the Gallows, you know, these guys, right?" And I read the piece, and I walk away with a different feeling and thinking of them, which I think was your objective. You know, they're big isn't bad. Um, They definitely innovated. You know, they certainly created a vertical business in wine like no one else. Um, We've been talking about family a bunch. It's still a family business. And, you know, I think they're making moves and talk about this for a second about, you know, how they value the employee and movement towards sustainability, you know, which interested me. Yeah. So my goal with the Gallo chapter was really to understand myself, like how on earth did they come to be what they are? And I have to say, I learned so much just from doing the research to write that piece. Right. And you know, it's not too much to say Gallo changed the world, not just the world of wine, but Gallo changed the world, you know, like the end. But when we come back to wine, the truth is that so much of what we take for granted in wine today, Gallo actually instigated, you know, so really simple things like having wine reps, like wine having unique distribution channels, um, you know, wine being centered as a as a sales and marketing focus, you know, like that's just obvious, right? We kind of assume, oh, well, the wine world will function. Didn't exist. It didn't exist until Gallo started doing it. And then people started imitating it, you know? So, and then the whole concept of vertical integration, they started doing that before it was an idea, (laughs) (laughs) you know? Right. It's It's not like they moved it into wine. I mean, they, they kind of built the concept. Yeah. I mean, just like as a, the simple example that really blew my mind was, you know, at some point they started doing their own glass manufacturing. Okay. That's very forward thinking. But then very quickly they bought the sand mines to right, the make supplier. the glass from. 
You know, I mean, it's like, well, these smokes, they own sand you know, so they can make glass. Right. Of course. But who thinks of that? No one. And they started listen. selling to other people, too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So they, you know, they are a source for glass um, supply. And they also, you know, they do their own transportation. Like it's like every aspect of what would go into selling a bottle of wine, they actually have integrated into their you know, business model, broadly speaking. So it's and from that sense, it's really brilliant. My goal with the piece was to be even-handed so people could be better informed and decide for themselves what they think, right? Because in the end, how we judge these things very much comes down to our own values and how we interpret information we're given. Some people are always going to think being that big means they're bad. Um, But it's like, okay, so that's one question. But now we have to ask, well, what do they do with it? Right. And like you said, you know, in researching the art, the piece in the book, I realized, you know what, they actually take very good care of their employees. Um, any time, any sort of company, whether you match a company culture or not, is going to be a question. But for the people that do match that company culture, they stay a very long time. You know, they. Um, that's important. Yeah, yeah. that's the, you know, so. It was actually and, it was interesting for me to work on that piece, yeah. And they're working on, you know, sustainability. Yeah, I wouldn't exactly. push it as far as leaders in regenerative farming, but there are a lot of things that they touch that, you know, they're making it a better world because, would you agree? Yeah, I, I do. I, I agree. And one of the things that's interesting about Gallo is that they don't promote all of the things that they do. So they are doing a lot more than people tend to be aware of and they actually um you know they have actually done a lot locally with kind of like habitat management water management um they have a big glass recycling initiative you know but those are all things they haven't used pr to promote but if you're here locally and working with other people that have contact with their company then you hear about it you know i'm just curious you know, I, I think the piece was four, five, six pages. I mean, it was, you know, really crammed with info. Has anyone fairly recently wrote a book about the Gallo history? I mean, was one of your resources that or it doesn't exist? There there are multiple books on Gallo, but they are older. Okay. I, don't, I can't think of a more recent one. I basically, in writing that piece, I thought about how am I going to do this and do it again in an even-handed way. And I ended up making a choice that to not interview anyone from Gallo, but instead to read everything ever written about Gallo. (laughs) Listen, that's one way to approach it. Well, and so I went, I scoured around and I found lots of really, really old articles, um, really old, uh, like even event announcements that they were part of and, and, you know, books, uh, multiple books. There's, some books that they helped with and there's a couple of unauthorized books about them as well. Right. And I, so, you know, so if it was printed, that's not enough to say, Oh, I should reference it. It's like, okay, well how, you know, when we kind of measure everything out from reading across the board, where, you know, where's the clear line that we can know. Um, I want to talk to you about another piece that you wrote in the book. Um, It's called drought fire in the future. You know, I think California and the world, for that matter, have adjusted to a new normal, you know, in climate change. Um, In the article or in the chapter, you discuss the effects of California of this climate change, specifically drought, fire. 
um, on the impacts on the vineyards, smoke taint, which you got into, you know, which is a pretty alarming and pesky thing. And you even discuss a little about, you know, how growers have to rethink going forward. You just can't keep doing the same things, you know, with climate change um, the way it is. You know, talk a little about that um, piece that you did. Yeah, it. Um, in some ways it was helpful for me personally to work on that piece. I, you know, living here and the fires are very personal. You know, um, yeah, really. We, we evacuated in 2017, which, of course, there had been fires in California before, and some even nearby. But 2017 was sort of this massively catastrophic experience that impacted the entire North Coast, and um, and it was really it was very chaotic because it was the first time that we'd had it kind of at that scale in town centers. And so shockingly fast, it didn't start from one place and spread. It started all over and, and those spread. And so thankfully the kind of public response system learned an enormous amount and took that goal of learning from 2017 really seriously. And so the next time we had a big fire, we actually, we, they started evacuations before fires even started because they, you know, we've, from 2017, we learned to better identify weather events um, before they get here that are likely to be fire weather. And we all, and they upgraded the public announcement system. They upgraded the kind of first responder communication systems and how they deploy people for in that sense. And they increased the um, resources and the, and the people that are able to respond during that time of year. So thankfully there's been tons of improvements, but it's still, it's, you know, 2020 was really quite difficult. And thankfully 2021, there were big fires in California, but they were comparatively um, milder and not in Napa and Sonoma. There were fires, but the response had been so improved that they got them out before they became issues really. But that said, because we were in really the most severe drought we've seen in 2021, the tension that we all lived through that whole year was really severe. And it, when the rain, first rain came, like I, I went out, I, like so many people I know, we all went outside <laughs> and we just got drenched right. on purpose because it was such a relief, you know? Right. But researching that fire piece there's, you know, I used to be an academic, we didn't even get into that. But before I started working in wine, I was an academic. Um, And that's a very specific kind of training where you, you know, you learn to research and then order the information and figure out how it's weighted and what makes sense and what's the clear line through it and all these things. And because I've been trained that way, when there's a really difficult topic, part of me can find relief from the strain of the challenge by turning to that sort of intellectual training and right finding out what can I actually know like for me that's like really always a central question what can I actually know like I'm okay with ambiguity if it's natural to the topic ambiguity that comes from just not having done the work to find out what we can know that's annoying to me <laughs> right. know, it's like no 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 let's be clear about what's happening here 
So right. researching the fire piece, I was kind of relieved, like it's upsetting. Some, in some ways, knowing more is more upsetting, but I, at least I am aware of what I can know and where I can keep learning too. Right. And you talk about, I guess, you know, taking all of what's happened and rethinking about what we have to do going forward, as I mentioned. I mean, you just can't plant the same crops. You may have to look at other varietals, timing, you know, what are, what are, I guess the question is, you know, what are some of the obvious things that have to be taken into consideration pretty quickly? Well, and forgive me, you had kind of, that was sort of what you originally answered. And I talked about my, I got distracted by the personal element, but that, but there's a lot of people working on those questions. So there are multiple experimental vineyards um, in part, different parts of California, some privately owned by producers and some um, being done by research institutions like UC Davis as an example. Right. So there's multiple experimental vineyards, research vineyards where they're, they've planted, you know, even up upwards of 60 different cultivars or varieties where they're planted in such a way that they can study how they ripen, how they respond to different kinds of weather events. And, um, and also, what the quality level is, you know, so there's um, a lot of studies being done on that because the idea is over time, we're going to need to think about how we're planting, where we're planting and what we're planting. And um, there's also really interesting research being done right now on how farming practices made in response to different kinds of weather events do impact quality. That's a really challenging, complex topic, but people are working on it. And we're already learning a lot more about what kinds of subtle farming responses can better set you up to have more resilient vineyards with better quality. One of the things people are thinking about is, you know, should we plant earlier ripening grape varieties with the notion that, well, if we can get our fruit in before fires are likely to start, that'll save us from the smoke concern. The truth is it's not quite as simple as just plant earlier varieties or just farm for them to come in sooner, but that is one solution and that will be a really good solution in some places. But if you talk if you talk Napa and Sonoma, and I know you're in Sonoma, um, you know, Napa is, I guess, even hotter and drier than Sonoma. And my recollection is, you know, that cab is king there. Are we talking about, you know, different cultivars of cab or just totally different varietals? Because do things change in the future because you just can't be what you were? Well, so it's going to, in some ways it's more, it's pretty nuanced. So you're, you know, we tend to talk about, okay, the grape variety itself. So in this case, Cabernet, but actually the rootstock that the Cabernet is grafted onto has a really big um, impact and actually determines a lot more than we ever tend to talk about just in category right. one conversation. So that's a really crucial piece, but also other things that again are so detailed, we tend not to talk about them, but like the soil architecture, how well it drains, how well it retains water. Though, you know, how deep it is, those things all affect these questions as well. And then again, um, your farming practices, do you irrigate or not? 
do you leaf pull or not? Like, what's your yield like? These are all, that's why I say it's really nuanced because they're all these different details are going to influence it. And then, but the the nuances are being noticed because of what's going on. They're being studied. And that, so that's the upside is there's a way in which we're learning so much more about all these questions now than we ever have before. So that's, um, that, that's, that's good. A positive. Yeah. And yeah. the thing that I'm seeing, you know, so you said, I, you know, you mentioned I'm in Sonoma, but I'm actually right on the Napa Sonoma line. I spend just as much time in, in Napa as I do in Sonoma. Right. The thing that I've seen too, which I think a lot of people might not recognize about this region is actually the level of collaboration produce, you know, the thing about Napa is there's the fact that it is mainly Cabernet now and it's a relatively small region, but actually quite varied in terms of microclimate, soil types, aspects, elevation, all these different things. Right. I mean, um, it's a really brilliant place to study these kinds of questions, but also because the amount of capital that's invested in ensuring quality comes out of the vineyards is really high. So right. there's a sense in which it's one of the most ideal places in the world to be able to genuinely work on and gain traction in understanding these issues. And the thing I've seen is that actually um, there's lots of high-end wineries of all different sizes that all are really are genuinely collaborating with scientists and researchers share and sharing um, their data, like from, you know, Napa has had weather um, gathering equipment longer than almost anywhere else in the world. And people are sharing those decades, you know, that decades worth of data, sharing their own farming practices and timing, you know, giving access to the vineyards, access to um, fruit to be um, studied as well. And so there's actually there really is genuine progress and genuine collaboration that's um, some of the best news I've heard coming out of uh, Napa in a while. I mean, the way you put it, other than maybe a more restrained Cabernet. Um, <laughs> Elaine, we, we have to take a quick break, um, but we'll be right back. When we come back, I want to talk to you a little about what's going on at JanCeaseRobinson.com. I want to talk to you about, you know, the effects of the pandemic and diversity And of course, I'm going to subject you to our wine list. You're listening to The Grape Nation on Heritage Radio. We're talking to Elaine Chacon-Brown, and we will be right back. This episode is brought to you by New York Mutual Trading, the premier Japanese food, alcoholic beverage, and restaurant supply specialist. Mutual Trading is the Japanese food authority, True to the heart in upholding genuine Japanese food traditions and progressive in exploring new ways to provide innovative restaurant supplies and services. They import, export, distribute, and manufacture the top brands for retailer and food service customers nationwide. Learn more at nymtc.com. All right, we're back. We're back with my guest, Elaine Chacon Brown. Um, Elaine is a 
Swiss Army knife in wine. I mean, there are just so many things, you know, that you do. And we've talked about them and I've explained them. Um, but one of the things that you are doing that is recent and very exciting is you were recently appointed as executive editor um, for the U.S. Um, to the prestigious online wine site, chancesrobinson.com where, just so everybody should know, you spent many years previously contributing to the site. Um, tell me a couple things. You know, why now on this? Why did it happen now? And tell me what you're being tasked with. Yeah, yeah thank you. So, yeah, I started right um, – the first time I worked with Jancis was in 2014, I believe, for the Oxford Companion, the fourth edition. Um, people are working now on the fifth edition. I've been able to contribute to that as well. But so I first worked with Jancis on the Oxford Companion. And then in 2015, she reached out to see if I would have any interest in contributing in relation to California. And so that was a modest role. I would submit somewhere between, you know, 10 and 16 articles a year sort of thing. Uh, so kind of loosely average about once a month. And but that set us up to really understand each other, understand how we both work, you know, what what we both believe is kind of appropriate journalism for that particular audience, um, set us up really well to understand each other's views of wines. So then by the time this position came up, we had already developed, you know, pretty good rapport and mutual respect. And so that's actually in making this transition, stepping into a much more significant role, it's actually made, um, you know, that prior relationship has made it all a lot smoother right. and a lot easier. And and in some ways, I don't know that it would have happened except that we already had that working relationship because it meant we understood each other. Right. So, so Jancis is, you know, something to remind everyone, you know, she started this site in... 2000. And if you think back <laughs> that far, the there really other, you know, wine magazines weren't even on the internet yet. Like people didn't no. really have websites for businesses in wine yet, you know. It so was she just was, starting. Yeah, she was if really then even. Yeah, she was really ahead of the game and um I think it was a year later she, it, she made it a subscription-based site. So again, she was really ahead of the game in, in creating that kind of model. And the fact that not only did she start that before most people, but she actually successfully built it and lasted for now more than 20 years. That's pretty incredible in my mind. So last year, she realized that, you know, she she's she's doing really well, but she also realized, oh, she needs to think about what's a reasonable um, next step so to speak. And so she ended up, she sold the site. And um, so it now has new ownership, but with the commitment that she is staying on as editor in chief. And the reason, you know, she actually spoke, in my understanding, to quite a few people that were interested in purchasing the site. But the thing that stood out with the um, new owners is really shared values. And I think in my mind, I have been happy to work with Jancis, and the truth is I've been willing to work with Jancis because I think first and foremost, she is defined by her integrity, and that has, you know, integrity only comes from consistency over time, and that is absolutely what she's had, and um, I think she's a trustworthy voice in the wine industry because of that. And, I agree. And 
you know, coming into this new role as the executive editor for the U.S., like we were interested in working together, you know, partly because I personally am committed to asking how do we maintain that reputation of integrity, even as we need to evolve in some topics, evolve in the platform, evolve in maybe even different bringing in other types of media so that it's not just writing. Like, how do we maintain that core value of integrity and clarity and, um, and consistency? So can I, can I ask you this? Yeah. Um, Cause I think it leads into it. When prominent wine people write about the subject, and when I say prominent, you know, people who have been doing it for years or, you know, an academic approach, whatever, anybody, um, even a certified sommelier, um, when they write about the subject, is it their responsibility now to go beyond the wine as just the beverage, a liquid in the glass, and discuss or, you know, at some point make mention of the environment, you know, that it's about the people, you know, there's diversity and equity issues, social responsibility. I mean, are, are, are they, are they responsible, you know, for covering that? And I'm not guessing, but I think part of why you're there is to add that. I mean, so, could you talk yeah. about that a little? Yeah. So, I mean, I think we have to allow that there's different ways to write about wine because there's different purposes that different Agreed. people have, right? Agreed. So, I boxed it in a little, but, um, you know, it's so a I bigger... Think, you know, so like someone that is like centrally fo fully focused just on reviewing wine they're going to have a really different project than someone who's like an investigative reporter or a historian, just as three quick examples. And part of what my interest in being able to do the job I'm doing now was, is that I have some flexibility to approach wine from lots of different angles. So I have the freedom to write about it with these different kinds of goals in mind. I obviously do really care about the history of, of wine and the history of the wine industry and how we've gotten to where we are today. But I also do really care about, you know, we need to be delivering wines worth drinking, right? So if we, that, like we said towards the beginning, wine is about a lot of things all at once, right? So right. it's not going to be good enough to find a wine we think epitomizes values of sustainability if the wine isn't good, <laughs> right? Right. And similarly, it's not going to be um, enough to say, oh, this wine is from a person that's a member of an underrepresented community, again, if the wine isn't good. Like, so the, th the thing is, how do we bring all those together? There are a lot of people who are making wine whether from the United States or elsewhere, who are from member, you know, members of less represented communities in wine, who are making wine worth drinking. So the job of someone who is, you know, kind of a leading expert, so to speak, or a leading voice in wine, you know, or my job, my job is to go find those examples that are worth drinking, that celebrate a unique perspective, that tell a good story, that are committed to being sustainable, you know, that really bring those things together. So um, different people are going to answer that question in different ways, but that's right. where I'm right. at. And I agree with how you helped me, you know, frame it. Um, sadly and ironically, one of your recent pieces 
is about a winery and a woman. I think it was an indigenous uh, owner that shut down, right? Yeah, so that's a so really unique case. So Tara Gomez is a winemaker in Santa Barbara County. Um, she is a member of the San Yanez band of the Chumash tribe, who historically, you know, really reached from Malibu all the way, you know, to north of Paso Robles. The Chumash um, were through that whole area of California previously. So the San Yanez band is sort of a local, um, smaller part of the Chumash tribe located there in Santa Barbara County. So Tara is uh, a member of that group and she has her own winery, Camines to Dreams. She and her wife, Maria Taribo, um, together have Camines to Dreams, really dynamic, gorgeous Syrah and Gruner Veltliner and sparkling Gruner, which is really fun. Um, it's mm. rare to see that. So yeah. that's made out of the Santa Rita Hills there in Santa Barbara County. But what was what that story you're referencing was about was in, in the whole world, totally unique in that Kita um, right, right. was uh, fully tribally owned, run and made. And I don't, it's, as far as I know, it's the only winery in the world that was fully tribally owned, fully tribally run and made. So there are, thankfully, there are other, um, other examples. Kono out of um, New Zealand is a Maori-owned winery that um, has started coming into the United States. Really solid, approachable you know, wines, as an example. Up in British Columbia, Incomeep is um, owned by the Asuyus Band there in o the Okanagan. They, again, you know, really solid um, wines. And um, it's a, you know, they have Justin Smith as a tribal member who is making the wines as well. It's a partnership with a wine company. So tribally um, owned, tribally made now, but um, kind of co-ownership model. So Kita, uh, Tara helped instigate Kita through her tribe. It was fully tribally owned, made from the vineyard that the tribe also owns and runs Camp 4. And um, Tara had done a really incredible job over 10 years of really building um, the prestige and attention towards that brand. Um, it had, was written up just this last year, both in Food and Wine and Bon Appetit, just as quick examples, won multiple awards. Uh, but the tribe decided that it was no longer interested in owning a winery. And so um, by April of this year, Kita will be fully closed. So that's, that's a sad story, but a story that needs to be reported. Um, I want to talk to you about one last topic, and then I want to uh, talk to you about our wine list. Um, I want to talk to you about diversity. That word has come up during the course of our talk. Um, offline, we talked about, you know, the pandemic the past few years. And, you know, I asked you if you thought that you agreed with me that it illuminated existing problems in the wine industry and in hospitality. Um, I've kind of come across from reading different things and a lot of your stuff that diversity is a much wider term than defined or as we know, you know, which some people think is a code for a racial difference. Um, how do you look at diversity and define it, you know, in our sort of world, which is, you know, wine and hospitality 
Yeah. And you've suggested, you know, steps, very obvious things. People go, where do I start or what can you do? You know, that are pretty straightforward. Can we talk about that a little? Yeah, for sure. I, well, and thanks for bringing up the point that, you know, diversity is not just about race. I think right now, uh, recently, people have have started to think of it. It's almost like a sub you know, like you sub it into reference race because people are afraid. Because right. people are nope. afraid to talk about race. Yeah. So just say the word diversity instead. Right. It's easier. Right. Yeah. But actually, if we're talking about diversity when it comes to people, we're talking about all of the different kinds of life experiences that make us unique from each other. And diversity very much brings these different things together. So diversity kind of references, you know, different people ha- can have different types of disabilities. People can have, you know, there's um, even, we talk about even more genders now than we've tended to before, right? Right. Um, you know, obviously race and ethnicity is part of it, but there's also religious differences that is that inform the cultural norms people are used to, the values that they subscribe to. You know, there's even just like, what nation did you grow up in um, or come from? And, you know, obviously there's different economic um, situations. These are all factor into questions of diversity. One of the really important things, though, is that when we haven't done the work to really understand how to work with diversity or to prioritize it, sometimes what we do is we assume, oh, if we just increase the number of people with different backgrounds, then we'll have diversity and we'll be all good. But... Every single one of us was raised in whatever culture we were raised in and have has we have gotten used to the norms of how we grew up. Like they how we're raised almost becomes habitual for us, right? There's all kinds of things right. we don't even notice that we do that are well-intentioned. They just are how we were raised. But when we're interacting with someone from a totally different background, those things we're used to could inadvertently be hurtful, or even sometimes harmful for someone else. And so when we're talking about diversity and valuing it, we're shifting to trying to bring more awareness to those differences and, in, and seeing that actually when we value and prioritize those differences, we have a greater ability to work together, to listen into new perspectives, to learn from those perspectives, and to even think creatively. So one of the things that I mentioned very briefly in an article I wrote recently, where I do talk through different steps we can take, uh, is just that groups, whether they're working groups in a, in a job, you know, um, community organizations, um, you know, even church book clubs, the more diverse the range of backgrounds for people that are in that group, when that group has adequate support, the more creative it is. But also, the like in a working environment, the more diverse the group at the decision-making level, the easier it is for that group to creatively problem-solve um, issues before they even arise. Well, because you're getting you're getting that diverse input. Yeah, exactly. From from every you know, everything you've just described, whether it's religion, race, disability, you yeah. know, just not through the lit, right? Yeah. Well, so a really simple example, and you know, I have an iPhone. Okay, so I I like 
part of the Apple, you know, nation or whatever. So let me say that Apple but, addict. Yeah. Well, and right. so I, I love I love my Apple products. It's true. But unfortunately, when Apple first released their watch, um, the Apple Watch, it did not work for people with um, more melanin in their skin. So I don't just mean it didn't work for black people. I mean, it didn't work for people that had darker skin. And so, um, and not, you know, across a range of tones or shades there, right? But right. now let's push into that. Had the engineering, the marketing, the decision-making team that went into design the Apple Watch included a range of people quite simply with different shades of skin, which is a very limited version of diversity, that alone would have prevented that problem. It went to commercial release. It was on the market. And it was only after quite a few were sold and different customers couldn't use it that they realized skin tone was a factor that affected how the watch worked. But did that example change the way <clears throat> they structured you know, how they move forward with product development or well, it just came it, and went? I, it definitely, they had to recall watches and re-engineer them. And so that but I'm they, talking more about the awareness no, I know, of why I they had to re, you know, I don't know. I don't work in Apple. I mm. don't have access to how they, are I don't remember reading works, anything. So yeah. But, um, yeah. but you know, it's a lesson like, that other companies and businesses need to keep in mind, right? Like studies have repeatedly demonstrated it's diversity at the decision-making level that increases the success of companies worldwide. Studies have shown that the companies with the greatest diversity at the top, the decision-making level, those are the most successful. So there's very good reason to care about this stuff. Right. But I, again, I think it's about shifting our perspective you know, when we realize we misspoke, it's, oh my gosh, it can be uncomfortable, right? But right. I think if we too thoroughly focus on that part of it, we start to get resistant to, to making changes. But if we realize, oh my gosh, I can actually learn from and improve my own understanding of the world and my own engagement with things around me, and I can increase the success of my business or my group or whatever it is, by being open to learning from someone with a different background than me, like that, that, that centers the positive and it centers the collaborative and community, the creative element. And that, that's it, where the it, value is. It doesn't sound hard, but for some reason, you know, it just doesn't happen the way it should. Um, I noted that, you know, in this discussion, you talked about, you know, five steps, you know, fair, fear of failure, rethinking, you know, how you recruit in business, rethinking education, focusing on retention, you know, company practices. And I think you described a bunch of those things, you know, in, in what you just said. Um, but those are usable steps, you know, if, if, you know, any small organization or large organization, you know, thinks about that, um, it's being con conscious of all of that um you agree yeah yeah absolutely and i think you know it's kind of like what i was saying earlier about um how i deal with challenges like for me it, you know a new 
new topic or a difficult topic can get overwhelming really fast because it starts to look like, oh my God, this is so much bigger than me. I'll never figure it out. Right. So what helps me, which is what I tried to do through this article you're referencing. So the article is called Next Steps in Diversity, and it's available on jancisrobinson.com. That's J-A-N-C-I-S robinson.com. So in that article, I break down things we can focus on. And because when we're making these changes, whether it's to have um, more viable, long-term, sustainable business practices or more um, realistic social responsibility, whether through diversity or supporting mental health of our employees, you know, or better work-life balance. These are all things that can only happen over time with commitment to making reasonable changes. You know, a lot of these things, it's like, don't expect, we can't expect ourselves to be perfect right now. And we can't expect ourselves to fix it all right away. We have to be willing to be open to learning what changes will help and also start with really simple changes that are manageable. And as we start, yeah, because the thing is, if we start with straightforward things we can do, we'll realize, oh my gosh, I just succeeded at that. I did it right. Right. And that'll feel good and motivate us to do more, (laughs) you know, and then just build from there. And, and again, I think, you know, we, there's, our culture has a kind of tricky perfectionist streak. And we see this come up these days in, you know, um, in calls for instant firing before people have even done the work to find out what happened. You know, it's like, no, right. we, we have to, there are times when someone does need to be removed from a situation because they are causing repeated ongoing harm. Right. But the only way we're going to change the world in the ways we're talking about is if we allow the space for people to improve, make those changes and get on board together. If we just try to fire everybody, we're going to make a worse situation for ourselves. <laughs> right. That That's very well said. Um, we're getting towards the end of the show. And I told you offline that we could talk about any of these things all day long. Um, but before we wrap up, we do a thing called the wine list, and it's rare I let somebody get away without answering our wine list. So we ask our guests five questions. Everyone's been asked the same five questions. You will be subjected to those. Spontaneous. You don't have to give me long, drawn-out answers. So the first question is, because you're a wine person, is what are you drinking now? What's in the fridge? What are you curious about? Yeah, so just last night, what I opened was a wine from South Africa called Kamusha, and it's the Flame Lily. It is a white blend, primarily of Roussan and Chenin Blanc, with a little bit of Columbard and um, Semillon in it. And Sounds it is, great. Oh, man. Yeah, so it's made. it was made by a sommelier from Zimbabwe who moved to South Africa to have the chance to make wine. And it's just, it's just cool. You know, I, I love white blends. This is like wonderfully textural. South Africa has had some challenges the last few years during the pandemic with wine sales. So I try to pick up a wine from that part of the world when I can. And so that's what I enjoyed last night. So do we know, and I will post all this. I forgot to tell everyone. I post all our guests, you know, answers on our social media platforms. Do we know if that's somewhat available in the states? Yeah. So Kamusha, there's multiple wines. Spell from, Kamusha. Yeah. Say K U M U S H A. 
Okay, so Kamush is the wine. Yeah, that's winery, the winery, and it's the white blend, and yeah. it's from South Africa. So I think the best way is, however, people search out wines. You know, they should, you know, Google that because we're yeah. talking to people all over the place. Anything else come to mind? Well, so they Kamusha makes rosés and reds as well. The, I so think the I'm, whole yeah, the whole Kamusha line is yeah, good. Ex- yeah, as a winery, I mean, yeah, and they're relatively good value. Some of them really good value. So yeah, I mean, South African wines are not you know crazy priced. Yeah. All right, so that's good stuff. Second question is, do you have? This is sort of the silliest question, but do you have a favorite wine and food pairing? It's not something you necessarily eat all the time, but mm. something that you know, food and wine are great partners. What's a great pairing? Well, so this is going to sound really obvious, but years ago- Don't friend, say champagne and oysters. No, no, no. I do. Uh, I love okay. champagne. I drink as much champagne as I can. <laughs> okay, go ahead. But years ago, a friend of mine, Gillian Handelman, did a private steak and Cabernet class for me. And- That's again, that sounds really obvious, but it was actually fascinating because she showed that grass fed and finished beef actually pairs better with mountain Cabernet versus grain fed beef pairs better with valley floor Cabernet that has more like oak on it. The mountain is more rustic, the Cabernet, again, sort of a little. Yeah, it's a, I wouldn't say gamey is the right word, but no. it's gamier than, you yeah. know, grain-fed. And a little more textural. Whereas right. grain-fed even has this tiny little coating that you get on your mouth. Yes. And it marries really beautifully with oak flavor from, from that kind of rounder style of Cabernet. So that kind of, you know, so again, steak, I love steak. A good cab is good, you know, but the idea that you can get a, just a little more nuanced and match, you know, meat type of steak to to uh, kind of growing specifics of Cabernet, I just think it's really fun. So now I got to go out and get some Neiman Ranch <laughs> grass-fed steak and like Dunhowell Mountain yeah, with about yeah, 10 yeah. years on it, you know? Yeah. So two things. That's a first. Nobody's ever given us that one before. And leave it to you to give us something like that. All right. That's a great one. All right. Third question. Your favorite wine restaurant and or bar. Now, let me just say something. By saying a few things, it's great. You're not leaving anyone out. These are not your favorite. These are just places that you can recall that have a great vibe, a great list. When you walk in, the people are great. If you can... Can you think of any place that fits those descriptors around you during your travels? Yeah. So I got started in wine actually in Flagstaff, Arizona, because like I mentioned, I used to be an academic and I was right. actually- Wait, I University liked, of Arizona? Northern or? Arizona University. Nor- I, okay. I liked working at the state level, um, which is a different got story you. for another time. But yeah, so I lived in Flagstaff, Arizona and there in Flagstaff, this like fantastic little high elevation mountain town, there's a- tiny place on the second floor of the building right in historic downtown Flagstaff called Flag Terroir, FLG Terroir. It has won multiple awards from Wine Spectator, the two glass awards. Um, It has, you know, Fred is a friend of mine. He's the managing partner for it. Still there, right? It's still there. Yeah. And it's, um, it's where I got started. And the thing is, it's got, you know, Fred is really brilliant 
at bringing wines from around the world. It has to, of course, be stuff that can get you can get in Arizona. But he's really well. Good that's at a different story on its own. You yeah. know, getting yeah, right? yeah. But he's 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 so great at finding smart wines across a range of price points in different styles from different parts of the world. And so anyone going through Flagstaff, definitely check it out. It is super worth the stop. So that's why people listen to this show and listen to people like you, because you come up with little gems like that. All right. So like I said, I'll post that. Fourth question. I asked my guests their favorite all-time wine, and when I structured the question, I realized I was looking for people to tell me the rarest, most expensive wine they ever drank because I was talking to sommeliers and winemakers and chefs. I don't give a crap about that. The question (laughs) has evolved into what is that wine that – is the most important to you. It was a gateway wine. It, it made an impression on you. Um, it It's memorable. It had meaning. I mean, I could almost answer part of that for you. And I don't, whether you drink it or not, it's when your dad sat you down and said, I'm yeah. drinking Pinot Noir. So yeah. that's sort of an answer to that kind of question. But what else can you think of? Well, the wine that actually made me chuck it all in in move into wine was actually a 2008 Irie Pinot Meunier. Um, and ah. yeah, so that's Willamette Valley, Irie, E-Y-R-I-E, you know, is the first winery in Willamette Valley, uh, first to plant vines there. And, um, you know, like you said, Pinot Noir has played an important role in my life. Pinot Meunier is um, very close sibling of Pinot Noir, essentially, but yeah. it's a little subtler. It's a little finer framed. Um, and, you know, when it's grown in the right place and re- really respectfully treated in the cellar, there's a level of nuance to it that kind of blows my mind. And so well, that's, first, that's a good winery. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, but the thing was, I had this wine at the time. I'd never even heard of Pinot Meunier. And that I'm like, I have to understand what's going on here. What is this wine? And I started reading about Irie and their story is incredible. And then they basically changed the world. They helped, they helped show Willamette Valley was a great right. place to grow wine, you know? And so then, and then I started reading about, you know, the David and Diana let who founded it and their son, Jason. And, um, and it, it, I, that's how I realized you get every, you can get everything through one glass, you know? And, so Pinot yeah. Meunier has really a very personal, special um, spot for me. And, and it's something I follow, kind of try to find examples of it anywhere it's growing. That's um, that's a great answer. That's a great winery. That's an unusual varietal. I mean, that is one of the champagne blending varietals, right? Mm-hmm. Pinot Meunier. Um, all right. So like I said, we're going to post that. Last question. And... I hope you can answer this. Uh, you know, I think you can. The question is best wine around 15, 20, 22 bucks, you know, that you would recommend. I think through your travels, and you alluded to, you know, the South African wine, which I know is a great quality to value thing. Not sure if it's that exact price. But when you think about good value wines, 15, 20, 22 bucks, I always say my kids are in their, you know, 20s. They can't bring crappy manufactured supermarket wines to dinners or 
as gifts, but they can't afford, you know, 40 bucks. So what comes to mind for really good value wines? Think of a red, think of a white. I always say, you know, you can give me uh, a region or a varietal, you know, Muscadet is a region is a good value and it's pretty cheap. What comes to your mind um, for good value wines, a red and a white? Well, so I, you know, I'll name a brand that I think is worth. Yeah, no, no. You give me make or brand. I'm, I'm up for all of that. Okay, cool. You know, whatever you got. Maison Noir out of that's uh, Andre. Yeah, exactly. Andre Mack. He, um, he, you know, started this brand out of Oregon. He now of course has several different restaurants and a wine shop there in Brooklyn. I think he owns Um, the whole block now. Yeah, I know. It's pretty great. Um, I was able to eat at ham bar in October. It was just super fun. Um, really, really cool wine list, all American wine um, and really old vintages too. Vintage stuff. He was on the show and he talked about, you know, how he was searching to get the wine list together. No, totally. It, um, and honestly, you know, the, as far as, pricing for these kinds of things go his prices are reasonable you know but but maison noir it's like totally again totally solid and um whites reds and rosés and across price point so his you know he has multiple wines that are in that exact range you're talking about right um you know a little under or a little over 20 bucks and um both whites and reds and then if you want it you know if you like his style then you could pop into 40 bucks every once in a while too but um, I think right. I think that would just be a really solid recommendation because he does have national distribution too, which is part of the yes. key. Yes, you know? I th- he's um, it is available and it is in that range of prices and it yeah. does check both boxes of red and white in those prices and like you said, you can go above that. Um, Elaine, you did an awesome job mm. on that. Um, and like I said, like I said, don't, don't, you know, pat yourself on the back so quickly. A lot of people <laughs> kind of fumble on this. So um, that was really good. And like I said, I'm going to post everything. All right. I got to wrap up the show. It's been over an hour. Um, I think Kevin's at my front door ready to break the door down and shut this down. So before I get some info from you, let me just do a quick wrap up. If you have a question, suggestion, wine happening, or event, hit me up at sam at thegrapenation.com. That's sam at thegrapenation.com. Subscribe to the Grape Nation podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Don't make me tell you this every week, but if you subscribe... The podcast is there when it's done, and all you have to do is just pick it up and listen to it, you know, from your uh, site. Follow us on Facebook at The Grape Nation. On Instagram, we're at S. Ben Ruby. On Twitter, we're at Ben Ruby. But you could find us on both of those with our hashtag, The Grape Nation. Um, Elaine, I want you to start following us. Um, as I mentioned, we will post Elaine's wine list on all those social media sites. Um, Elaine, where can we find you on social media and online? And you said something earlier that we should backtrack on. Um, so l- if I missed anything, help me at the end. We talked about the book On California. It's called On California from Napa to Nebbiolo, Wine Tales from the Golden State. It's published by Vindu Academy. Academy Divin, Academy Divin Academy Library. Divin. And it's always great to buy direct through their website because then um, you're helping keep the proceeds in small publishing. All right. So then for the book, 
go to the uh, web, their Academy website. Academy Yeah, Academy Divin. Academy Divin. A-C-A-D-E-M-I-E. Um, Divin. All right. Now, Jan, JancisRobinson.com. Mm-hmm. Um, couple things. You are now the executive editor for the U.S. We should tell people that it is a pay site, but you can get some content. Talk that through with me for a second. Yeah. So it is funded entirely through subscriptions. And so there's a mix of content. There's always some stuff that's available front of house, free for all to read. Wine of the week, which um, every week the team recommends a wine that's relatively affordable, um, definitely has distribution in the U.S. market um, as well as U.K., hopefully more broadly as well. And um, the ideally, we like to try to find one that also has a, you know, like re- renewable energy or sustainability focus. Um, but so every week we recommend a wine that it, you can go out and find. And again, that is generally affordable um, and that's free for all to read. Uh, different kinds of kind of breaking news updates also generally tend to be free to read. Um, so like you referenced the article about Kita closing, that was free to read, came out last right. week. And then earlier in the month, um, there were two versions of an article on diversity in wine. One was a kind of an intro primer and then a uh, quite long next steps with, with the five um, steps that you referenced. Both of those are also free to read. And so if you just got on the site and searched diversity, they would pop up. Um, and so it's a mix like that, you know, really in-depth producer profiles. I just did a, a quite long form piece on Raj Parr, who's one of the most famous sommeliers in the world and like what he's up to now. You that and I were subscription based. You and I were both recently at Phelan Farm. Yeah. I was great. there in November. Yeah. I saw you were there. That was I know a you did an thing. episode with him too. Yeah. yeah. Well, I've done a bunch of them. I'd probably yeah, have yeah, them on every I mean, week if he agreed no, to I it. No, he's <laughs> no, he's so great. But I mean you did an episode specifically on that topic, which was Yes, cool to I did. Yeah. Um, so there's great content on the site for free, and there's even deeper content. So people should contemplate, you know, both, whatever makes yeah. sense for them. And if we want to follow you um on social media where do we look towards yeah so the main place is instagram um i do have a twitter account but i don't do much wine stuff with it um but i but i post on instagram relatively regularly and that is um under my pen name hawk waka waka so that's hawk like the bird underscore w-a-k-a-w-a-k-a right um and isn't it the same on Twitter? Because, you know, yeah, even during is, the yeah. course of this show, we didn't just talk about wine. So I think if people are interested yeah. in you, they're interested in, you know, what you're saying. So yeah. Twitter is the same thing. Yeah. And I'm not all on right. Facebook at all. So Okay. Um, <laughs> any, I'm not there much either. I mean, for the show, but what, um, is there anything else we need to mention that way? We got everything. Well, I just really want to thank you. And I know Kevin is behind the scenes making this all happen. And so thank you to Kevin as well. But, but honestly, Sam, most of all, thank you for including me. I really, it's, it's, you know, I followed your show for a while. I really admire the conversations you have and the range of guests you bring on. And thanks for including me in it. Coming from you, I appreciate that. I've been following you for a long time. I was actually, I don't know, a little intimidated to do a show with you. Very little intimidates me, but, you know, I care for you. I care about what you say. I want to get it right, you know, so that's, you know, where 
I kind of get a little caught up. I thoroughly enjoyed this. Um, you know, I would like to stay in touch with you and, you know, check back at, you know, with you at some point. So I want to thank our guest, Elaine Chacon Brown. Um, I, Elaine beat me to the punch. I want to thank our engineer, Kevin, who's patiently waiting for me to end the show and everyone at the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you've been listening to The Great Nation. The Grape Nation is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. And thanks for listening.